Good morning, Redemption. Everybody ready for the Super Bowl? All right, here it comes. All right. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count out from three and everyone shout out who you're rooting for. Three, two, one. All right, it sounds like we've got some Bengals fans in here. Here we go. Okay. Well, in 1829, George Wilson robbed a United States mail carrier in Pennsylvania. Subsequently, he was captured and he was tried in a court of law. In May of 1830, he was found guilty on six charges, including putting the life of the male driver in jeopardy. So he was sentenced to execution by hanging to be carried out shortly, about a month or so thereafter. He had some influential friends who pleaded for mercy to President Andrew Jackson on his behalf, and Jackson issued a formal pardon, dropping all charges against him. And shockingly, this point I want to pay attention to this morning, shockingly, Wilson refused the pardon. He refused the pardon. An official report stated that Wilson chose to, quote, waive and decline any advantage or protection which might be supposed to arise from the pardon. The Supreme Court was called in trying to decide what to do. What do we do if we got a pardon, but we got someone who's not accepting it? And they determined the pardon was not effectual if the criminal did not accept it. Quote, uh, they found, quote, the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it, end quote. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote this. He said, a pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws, but delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. Wilson's story raises an interesting question for us. That question is, why would you reject the pardon? Why would someone reject the pardon? Uh, Today, we are looking at the story of a criminal who receives a pardon. We're in John chapter 18, and we're looking at the story of Barabbas. And Barabbas is a criminal, a violent revolutionary who is on death row, And yet, in this scene, we're going to see that he has offered a pardon, not because a friend intervened for him, but rather a stranger, someone he never met, doesn't even know. And not because this friend, just uh, this person just kind of put in a good word, but rather this person exchanged their own life for his. And this pardon is not simply a paper signed, but rather a life given. The title for the message this morning is The Great Exchange. And the question it provokes is, why would you not accept the pardon? Let's jump in. John chapter 18, verse 38b. After Pilate had said this, he just had this interaction with Jesus and kind of got it landed with, man, what is the truth? After Pilate says this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate said, I find no guilt in Jesus. I've inspected him. I've looked at him. I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So who's it going to be? Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. 
Now, Barabbas was a robber. The cross is the great exchange. The cross of Christ is the great exchange. Jesus exchanges himself here for Barabbas. And this is a fascinating exchange because this is an exchange of the innocent being traded for the guilty. Paul says, I mean, Paul Pilate says here, I find no guilt in him. He says it three times in this passage. He tells the people, I've inspected him, I've looked at him, and as governor, as the one with the right to rule, I find no guilt in this man, Jesus. And yet he is being exchanged for one who has been rightly found guilty. Jesus is the innocent one in this picture. Jesus is innocent and everyone knows it. What has Christ done but healed and delivered and saved and spoken the truth? That's the one that can get you in trouble, speaking to the truth. Jesus is innocent, but this is a sham trial on trumped-up charges where he has been betrayed by his best friend, handed over by his own people in this mockery of true justice. And on a deeper level, Jesus is not only innocent of the charges they are bringing against him, Jesus is perhaps the only, he is not perhaps, he is the only truly innocent person who has ever lived. There is no one but Jesus who has lived the fully human life of life without sin and perfect righteousness before God and perfect obedience to his Father and perfect love for humanity, love for God, walking in the ways and the holiness and the life that we were all made to live in, but that we have all fallen short of. Jesus is the truly innocent one. And yet he is exchanged here for the guilty. More so, Jesus is also the king being exchanged for a rebel. He's not only the innocent for the guilty, but we see here the king in exchange for the rebel. Pilate calls him here the king of the Jews, and this is more true than Pilate knows. Jesus is truly the one that God is establishing as king for his people and the rightful king of the world. And yet, who is Barabbas? Barabbas, we're told, is a robber, but in English, that word doesn't quite do justice to the picture because when we think of a robber, you might think of a cat burglar or something to that effect, but the actual word was a revolutionary. It was a violent, for someone that we should envision more as a terrorist perhaps today, someone who has sought to overthrow the Roman Empire and has sought to do so with violence and with unjust means. Crucifixion was reserved by the Roman Empire for such revolutionaries. It was one of the, not one of the, it has been found to be the most brutal and worst possible way to die. The agony and pain of being hung by nails and ultimately the goal was you, you you were to suffocate and your dehydration after extended agony. And the Romans, they they wanted to make this death as painful as possible to send a public message to the people, which was don't mess with the empire. 
Now, Barabbas is a violent revolutionary, a lestai, a robber who has been found guilty of murder and of, of all these, the, these things. And so what we see here is a picture. He is a rebel who has committed insurrection against the rightful king of the time. And in the bigger picture, it's a picture of a rebel against the rightful king. Jesus is the king who is exchanged for the rebel taking his place. One more note on Barabbas. Interestingly, his name literally means son of the father. Bar Abbas, Bar son, Abbas, father. Barabbas' name means son of the father. And John draws our attention to this. And that's very interesting because can you think of Jesus's core primary identity that we have seen over the last few months in the gospel of John? It is this, it is that Jesus is the son of the father. He is the only begotten son. And so we find a picture here where the true son of the father is becoming a criminal on death row in order that the criminal on death row can become a true son of the father. This is the great exchange where the son of the father is being exchanged for the criminal. So the criminal can be exchanged for who become a son of the father. This is where the innocent is being exchanged for the guilty in order that the guilty can have his record expunged, the stain wiped away. And this is where the king of the universe is being exchanged for a rebel against the kingdom in order that the rebel can become a citizen once more. And I wonder what Barabbas' last night on death row was like. Could you imagine with me, if you will, place yourself in Barabbas' shoes and imagine what was the 24 hours preceding this like? If you can imagine, what was your last meal, the last thing he ate, tasting and savoring the taste, knowing this would be the last time his lips tasted such a thing? Imagine the internally saying goodbye to family and to friends, the ones, loved ones that you'll never see again. I wonder if he had nightmares or if he was unable to sleep as he anticipated what was coming the next day as he tried to soak in every last breath, every last moment. I wonder if he had questions like, will God meet me on the other side? Or do all I face is darkness in the end? I wonder if he experienced remorse or guilt. Did he see the faces of the people whose lives he had stolen flashing before his eyes? Did he second guess the ideology that he had given his life to? I wonder if he anticipated and could already begin to feel in his body, the anticipation of the nails piercing his flesh, the anticipation of the dehydration as he, his body was soaked and starved for water. Did he anticipate the suffocation as his breath, long, torturously slow, was expunged and expired from his body? Did he anticipate finding himself forsaken and alone? a son abandoned by the father. And then Barabbas awoke to the news. You're free 
to go. What? You're free to go. What? Yes, another has taken your place. How? Well, the governor said, hey, it's Passover, and there's another whose blood is being shed to cover the doorpost of this prison you're in so that you can go out and walk free. Can you hear the clink of the key in the lock and the shackles break and fall to Barabbas's feet? Can you smell the fresh air as the door swings open and he walks out under the blue sky back into the city? Can you see the crowds of people as he re-enters life and light and community of his people again? Can you feel the wonder of Barabbas? Why was I given this second chance? Who is this stranger who took my place? Because the reality is, this is not just the story of Barabbas. This is the story of you and of I. Jesus died to set you free. Jesus is the king of the universe who died for you, a rebel, when you had rebelled against his kingdom, when you had said, no, my way, God, not yours, when you had sought to live on your own terms apart from God, when you had sought to establish your own independence from God and essentially waged war on the rightness of his kingdom and the goodness of his justice, and you had, when you did all that, the king of the universe exchanged himself for you, a rebel, the innocent one, the only truly innocent one in his perfect humanity, he exchanged himself for you when you were guilty. When you had, he, he wiped away the stain of the guilt on your conscience of the things you've done, of the people you've wounded, of the regrets in your memories and the things that you wish you could take back. The innocent one exchanged himself to wipe away your guilt. The innocent one exchanged himself to wipe away the stain that you carried before the law, not only the law of human laws of the nations, but the very law of God, the word of God and the rule of God, which exposes and pierces your soul like flesh. It pierces through flesh and bone and it exposes and reveals yourself before the maker of all things, the creator of the universe, that you and I, we are guilty, but the innocent one took your place to wash you of your stain that you could find your innocence once more in him. And Jesus is the son of the father who substituted himself for you in order that you could get out of that dungeon that you were in. That you could step out of the darkness and despair of a life without God, of your distance from the father of facing an eternity without him. Jesus exchanged himself for you so that you could enter out once more into the light and the life and the fresh air of his kingdom. That you could be born again, born from above into the family of God, born as a child of God, a true son, a true daughter of the father. That you could be embraced once more in the beauty of his kingdom. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how prodigal you had been in your distance, you are now in Christ embraced as a true child of God because Jesus, the true son of the father, exchanged himself for you. The cross is the great exchange where Jesus died to set you free. This is the gospel 
I used to wonder, why, why, why does John put this story here? Why? Barabbas, he's got all the details, you know, we need to know about the, the high priest and Pilate and the government and the cross. But why this strange story of Barabbas here? What we discover is that John is giving us a picture of the gospel. This is Christianity 101. This is basic to the faith. If you don't get this great exchange, you don't get the heart of the gospel. So I want to take some time this morning to teach us on, on, on this, this great exchange, and help it sink in, hoping that it could sink into our bones, that it could get into you and to I and solidify who we are in Christ because of what he has done. And so, first observation I want to make here is to say this, that Jesus is an active agent, not a passive victim. In the gospel and at the cross, Jesus is an active agent agent, not a passive victim. Because we see Pilate here, and Pilate, is Pilate really in charge? Pilate thinks he's in charge. He's inspecting him and looking at him and saying, I find no guilt in him. Pilate thinks he's in charge, but really, the crowds are in charge of Pilate, right? It says that the crowds were shouting out, crying out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And so as much as it may look like Pilate is in charge, he's actually a slave to popular approval and appeasing the masses. Pilate is himself under the authority of the people that he's trying to appease and keep happy and you know. And yet at a deeper level, the crowds themselves, they think that they are in charge. They are determining who will go free and who will be crucified. But when we zoom out into the bigger picture of John's gospel, we find, no, the crowds aren't in charge either. They're ebbing and flowing with, with, with the moment and the movement and what's happening around them. But truly what we find is that Jesus is in charge. Earlier in John chapter 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus tells Pilate elsewhere, he says, you would have no authority over me unless it were given you from above. In Luke's gospel, it says, Jesus preparing for the cross, it says he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And then like an arrow streaming towards its target, he made his way to the cross. Jesus is no passive victim here. Jesus is a jaguar and he is out to devour death. Jesus is a pro wrestler out to take the power of sin and its consequence and the curse in the grave and to body slam it with himself. The cross is not just happening to Jesus. Jesus is happening to the cross. Jesus is an active agent going to the cross for your and I salvation. And sometimes I think we can have some bad analogies for the cross, right? So uh, I remember seeing years ago, there was this uh, video um, someone had made and the intentions were good, you know, but, but the video, it was this dad and he's taking his kid to work at the train yard. And so the father comes with his son to work at the train yard and, and he's running the gears while the son goes off to play. And, and, and the kid, you know, he's like six, seven years old. He's kind of hanging out underneath the, the bridge and messing around with his toys and the gears and all. And, and the bridge is up and the dad's kind of at the gears. And then the dad realizes, oh no, there's a train coming. 
And in order to save all the people on the train, I got to pull the gear and bring the bridge down. But when I do, he sees his son in the distance. He goes, oh no, my son is under the gears. He's going to get crushed by the bridge. And so is it my son or is it all the people? And he, he pulls the lever and, and, and the challenge or the problem with this analogy is that it makes Jesus a passive victim, right? Jesus is not a five-year-old kid playing in the gears, minding his own business, suddenly going, what, what's going on? Like, Pilate, what are you doing? I didn't, I didn't see this coming. Jesus saw this coming before Pilate did. The gospel says before the creation of the world. Jesus is the lamb slain before the creation of the world. This is the eternal plan of the Father, Son, and Spirit for your salvation at work in the cross. This is not catching Jesus by surprise. He is the author of this plan of salvation. We can find better images for substitution in our epic movies. I'd say there are images all around us that echo and, and, and hit our hearts because this is, this is Katniss Everdeen saying, I volunteer as tribute so that my sister doesn't have to go and I will represent my people before the powers of the world that are trying to tear this thing apart. This is John Krasinski screaming at the top of his lungs in a quiet place to bring down the wrath of the monsters upon himself so that his children might live. This is Aslan going to the stone table to bear the curse and to break the power of the white witch so that the eternal winter might be broken. It's more, right? This is Iron Man snapping his fingers to defeat the White Witch's magic. Thank you, Victor Gates. <laughs> and to <br> <laughs> knowing full well it means he's going down with Thanos, whose name means literally death. This is Bruce Willis detonating the nuclear bomb in an asteroid when I was a kid in Armageddon, right? <laughs> to save the earth and blow up, you know, save the world. This is Leonardo DiCaprio going down into the icy waters. In that movie, you all go, man, that feels cheesy, but you're all crying when it's happening, right? Because he is lifting up his bride and laying down his life in order that she might go on. This is, <laughs> this is Harry Potter surrendering himself to Voldemort, whose name literally means Lord of Death. Volde, Lord, Mort, Death, surrendering himself to break the curse so his friends can live. Jesus actively goes to the cross. These images are all around us and they echo with the human heart because they echo the true story of the world. These are our stories that we project from earth to heaven, but Jesus is the true story. He is the fairy tale come true. He is the reason we weep when we see those stories. He is the reason those are the most epic, are the, the, the stories of sacrifice, because they resound with the true story of the world, which is that Jesus actively gave his life for you. Jesus is no passive victim. He goes to the cross to lay down his life for you and I. And he, in so doing, he breaks the power of the curse that was on you. He breaks the power of, uh, of the law and what it held you under. And it's not only how he defeats the principalities and powers of your enemy, it's also how he satisfies the perfect justice and righteousness of God. Jesus is an active agent. And he did it in love for you. 
Why does Jesus go to the cross? He didn't do it because of how good you were. He did it because of how good he is. He didn't do it because you deserved it. He did it because he desired to be with you. Jesus did not go to the cross because you wanted him. He went to the cross because he wanted to be with you. The gospel says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Christ laid down his life for us. Christ went to bear your punishment because you, like Barabbas, were on death row. You and I, we were distant from the presence of God. We may not be there yet, but we've all got one foot in the grave. We're heading towards it. All of us find ourselves in exile, distance from the presence of God. All of us find ourselves on a trajectory towards death. It's coming. Whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you ignore it or not, whether you face it or not, it is coming. Paul says in Romans, we all live under slavery to the fear of death, whether or not we know it. It's interesting, Ernest Becker, he was uh, one of the Pulitzer Prize for the denial of death. And it was this book exploring how, it's like, man, Freud thought all our stuff is just like repressed sexual desires, urges, whatever. He goes, no, Freud was wrong. Deeper than that, our fear of death drives so much what we do because we don't acknowledge the reality that that's what we're heading towards, that's what we're under. But the good news of the gospel is because of Jesus, he bore your exile and death, which means no, you no longer need to live in fear of it. You can face it head on when it does not have the last word because Jesus actively conquered it and he did it for you. Jesus actively goes to the cross for our salvation. And because of that, You've been given a great pardon. You and I have received a great pardon. Not a piece of paper, but a life given. The cross is his signature written in blood. We read in verse 39 that this is occurring on the Passover. It says, hey, I got, I got this custom. On the Passover, I'll let someone go. Why does John include that detail? The Passover was a time where the lamb was slain, where a sacrifice was made, in order that then the, the blood of the sacrifice would be put over the door and the one who was under slavery, the one who was imprisoned, the one who was in subjection, the one who was on a trajectory towards death would be able to go free, to be redeemed, to be delivered, to be brought out, to be released. Barabbas release here, it says, they released him. That's a picture of the gospel where Jesus is the perfect lamb slain for our salvation in order that we could step out of the prison and go Free. Jesus is the perfect lamb. The substitution he makes at the cross works because of his perfect humanity, his perfect righteousness. Jesus is blameless and innocent. Jesus has lived the life that you and I were made to live, were supposed to live, but haven't lived because of sin. He lived the perfect life that was ours to live and then 
dies the death that was yours and mine to die. Why did he do this? The early church had a phrase, I love it, it was that the, the unassumed is the unhealed, meaning what Christ's goodness and perfection does not touch remains unhealed. And so they reasoned, man, if Jesus had a soul, he could save our souls, but without a body, he couldn't save our bodies. And so Jesus took on a body. But if Jesus had a body, but he didn't experience our corruption and our affliction and our death, then he would be able to save a perfect person, but not a dead person. And so Jesus not only took on a body, but he took on our sin and our suffering and our sickness and our death in order to unite himself with us in the fullness of our condition, because that which is not assumed by Christ, that which does not come into contact with us from Christ remains unhealed. But if it is touched by Christ, if it is brought into the presence of Jesus, the living God, then there is salvation that is found there. Some misunderstand the cross as we call like the broken trinity, like, like the eternal son and father. And so you're like, they're, they're getting ruptured against you. But no, this is the triune act of salvation. That the way this has been historically understood by the church is that there's this kind of powerful double thing happening, that the tension that we find is within Christ's divinity and his humanity. That in Christ's perfect humanity, he is bearing your distance from the presence of God. And yet, in his divinity, he is bearing the presence of God into your distance. Let me say that one more time. In Christ's humanity, he is taking upon himself the fullness of your condition, your distance from the presence of God. And yet, in his true divinity, he is, he is bearing the presence of God, the triune God, into your distance to encounter you in the fullness of the darkest prison that you're in in order that the light and the life of his salvation might come into contact with your death and your brokenness and might bring you out and fling wide the gates through his bloodshed and bring you into life and to light with him. The cross... John Calvin, Martin Luther, they, one of their favorite images for the cross and the gospel, they called the great exchange. And the great exchange, what this was, it was the imagery of marriage and how when a husband and wife come together in their union, all that is the husband's becomes the wives and all that is the wife's becomes the husband's. And so when Christ lays down his life for his bride at the cross and is brought into union with us there, everything that is ours becomes his and everything that is his becomes ours. This means that Christ takes the worst you've got to give and he exchanges it for his best. Christ takes your sin and gives you his righteousness. Christ trades his obedience for your rebellion. Christ swaps his perfection for your rejection. Christ bears your poverty that in him you might become rich. Christ tastes your evil that you might feast on his holiness. And Christ receives the curse you and I have unleashed in order to bless and to make us whole. The cross is the great exchange. And the question I want to leave us with this morning is why would you reject the pardon? Why, 
Why would you reject the pardon? George Wilson rejected that pardon back when, and I, I don't know why he did. I don't, no one seems to know the fullness of his motivations, but I wonder what would cause you to reject the pardon that Christ has offered today. And I believe that there are maybe two reasons that some of us here in this room might not be willing to accept the pardon. The first reason that you might not be willing to accept the pardon is that you might think, I'm not that bad. <laughs> I'm not too bad. You know, like, yeah, maybe uh, I've said a few unchoice words to my wife at the end of a long day, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right at my job. Because, you know, I got to confess, like sometimes as a pastor, I can, I can fall into this, right? Like, yeah, there was back then, but I'm doing all right now, you know? Yeah, I can start to believe my own hype and thinking like, you know, the gospel, really, this exchange, this, this, is for, this is for the drug addicts. This is for like people who are really down and out and hard. And no, I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. We are the criminals. We stand guilty before God. And here's the thing. You will not know and fully comprehend the greatness of God's love for you until you understand the, fully the extent of your wickedness. Right? Here's the power is the more you look into the dark abyss of life on your own without God, of that which you've done to others, that which you have failed to do, that which you have failed to do to God, the honor that you have refused to give your maker, the ways that you have lived on your own terms rather than his, and the darkness of distance from that God and the abyss of life on your own that that leads to. Until you gaze into the darkness of that abyss, you will not understand the greatness of his love that he went all the way to the cross to exchange himself for you. So if you find yourself in that spot today, I want to call that out and just go, no, you are that bad. I am that bad. We are that bad. But he is that good that he has gone all the way down to take it and to find you there. And so receive the pardon because you need it. Don't deceive yourself. Don't trick yourself into thinking, ah, this doesn't really matter. That's for other people. This is this religious game. This is whatever. No, this is the creator of the universe offering you life forever together in union with him. Do not look this gift in the eye. That was the wrong metaphor. <laughs> gift horse in the eye, whatever. You know what I mean, though, right? Do not turn away from this gift. Receive the pardon. Now, I mentioned a, a, a second concern that, that some of us would have, and I, I think it's the opposite issue. Another reason I believe some of us might not accept the pardon is to believe I'm too bad. I'm too far gone. Man, Josh, if you knew the things you could do, that I've done. I've, I've destroyed my marriage. My kids hate me. My reputation is on the, the rocks. You might feel the shame of your addiction, the, the, the prison of sexual addiction with that porn habit or the, the habit that you can't break, the, 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 the substances you keep going back to. You might find yourself going, I'm, I'm too far gone, Josh. If you knew, man, if, if God only knew the, the embarrassment that, that I am to my, my, my family, the, 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 the ways that I've found myself to be, you might hear the lies of the enemy saying, you're too incompetent. You're, too, you're an embarrassment. God, 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 God's not for you. 
yeah, yeah, there's, there's those people, but, but you're too far gone. Do not listen to the voice of your accuser. Listen to the voice of your Savior. The reason that we have this cross here at the center is that we might remind ourselves that we regularly come before uh, together, gathering around as a community, that we remember his sacrifice, the depths and extent of his love, that he exchanged himself for you. Don't minimize the scope and the power of his love and his affection and his sacrifice. Because you realize when you say, I'm too bad, what you're really saying is that his sacrifice was not that good. When you say, I'm too far gone, what you're really saying is he didn't go far enough. But he did. And the gospel really is that good can encounter you in the depths of wherever you find yourself this morning. I want to accept the pardon. And, well, and how do I accept that pardon? All you need to do is to place your faith in him, your trust in him, your confidence in him, give your allegiance to him and go, yeah, you don't got to go earn it. You don't got to bring him your resume. You're just going, Jesus, I'm banking on your reputation and I am receiving the pardon of the life that you've given. And I believe there may be some of you here this morning where you've never done that. Like you've been around Christianity. You, maybe you've been exploring Jesus and you've been around, but you haven't yet kind of taken that step to just go, man, yeah, I, I, I receive the pardon. Jesus, I accept what you've done for me. And if that's you this morning, I want to invite you. I want to call you to Don't reject the pardon any longer. Receive what Christ has done for you and tell him that. Tell him that. Tell us that. We're going to have a baptism party next week. And if you want to know what baptism is, it's this. It's saying, I accept the pardon, right? What baptism is, it is a sign where you go under the waters. a sign that, man, I'm united with Christ in his death. And then you come up from the waters. It's a sign, I am united with Christ in his resurrection. If you have never been baptized, then come and talk to me. I'm going to be right up front after this. Or come talk to me. Come talk to any of our pastors. Shoot us an email, whatever. But come, I want you to come out and, and talk to us and get baptized next week, right? Like, this is the sign that Jesus himself gave going, if you want to accept the pardon, it's not just praying a prayer. It's not just doing a thing. It's being publicly accepting what I've done for you in this sign of being united with me in my death and in my resurrection. So I want to call you to that baptism next week. But even in preparation for that, if that's you, I want to invite you right now to pray with me. I'm going to walk us through a prayer. And I want to invite you under your breath just to pray this to Christ with me and for all of us to, to join together. Maybe you know, if you're, you're with Christ, you can even, as a recollection and a remembrance of what Christ has done, would you join me? Let's every head bowed, every eye closed. And would you join me in prayer? You can repeat after me if that's you, that Jesus, I receive your great exchange in my place. I know I'm the rebel in this story, the criminal. But you are the mighty king, the loving savior. I put my faith in you, my trust in you. I receive the pardon, I receive your grace. 
And I'm stepping out of this dungeon into the light and life of your kingdom. Man, man, if that was you, I want to challenge you to make it public. Like, tell a friend, come tell me, tell one of us around, and get dunked in the waters next week, right? Man, we're going to be there as church family to celebrate with you and to jump into that with you. And now this morning, as we come to the table, we come to the great exchange. We come to the bread of his body given, the wine of his blood shed. And what I want to invite us all to this morning is, man, the gospel is not a one-time thing for the rest of us. We did way back then. The gospel is the thing we keep coming back to over and over again. That's why we keep coming back to this table, more powerful than this image of the cross we got behind us. You'll notice that cross is empty, but Christ is still giving himself to us as his people today. And so we come to this table. We come to Jesus the one who exchanged himself for you. And I want to invite you this morning, as you come to the table, whatever you're feeling, bring your wickedness and receive his righteousness. Bring the brokenness you're feeling and ask for his healing. Bring your poverty and receive his riches. Bring your sin and encounter afresh the glory and the power of his salvation. I want to invite us this morning. Take a little time at the table. And it doesn't need to be the delivery line, just grab and go. But you know, you can actually come and and if, if, if there's lines, you can wait a little bit and then and then come when it starts to open up. But I want to invite you to come and to reflect and to thank, give thanks. This means Eucharist means give thanks. Give thanks to Jesus for the exchange that He has done on our behalf. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we are Barabbas. God, we acknowledge and own that we are the criminals on death row, Lord. We are those in distance from you, God, in exile and on a trajectory towards death. We are those who are rightfully exposed by the goodness of your law as guilty. And yet, Jesus, we bring you glory and honor and praise that you, the innocent one, exchanged yourself for us and bore our guilt that we might find ourselves innocent once more. Washed of the stain, God. God, I pray for anyone who's feeling the weight of the, the stains right now, the stains of their past, the stains of the things they've done, the stains of the things they've thought, the stains of where they've been, Lord, that, that God, Holy Spirit, we would experience your cleansing power of your atonement for us this morning. The power to wipe every stain from our conscience, before you, Almighty God. Jesus, you are the mighty king who gave yourself for us, the rebels, Lord. And so this morning, God, we offer you our full obedience now as citizens of your kingdom. God, Lord, may we embody your kingdom come, your will done here on earth as in heaven because you invited us in and welcomed us home when we were yet rebels. And Jesus, you are the true son of the father. And thank you that because of your sacrifice, we are criminals no more, God. We are daughters and sons of the king. Thank you that you have brought us home to be embraced by our heavenly father and the family of God. And so we worship you. We give you all praise 
honor this morning. Jesus, you are the truly innocent one. You are the rightful king. And you are our savior, God. We find our life in you, our hope in you, our all is in you. Amen.